This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Uh, our guests today are Howard Kondrather, Robert Meyer, and Erwan Michel Kerjan, and we're going to talk to them about 30 years of the Wharton Risk Center. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me today on the Knowledge at Wharton show. Glad to be Pleasure here. To be here. Uh, so uh, to begin with, I uh, wonder if we can start with you, Howard. Uh, what led to the starting of the Risk Center 30 years ago? Well, McCool, it's interesting that our center has always focused on low-probability, high-consequence events, and it was a low-probability, high-consequence event that actually got the center started. Uh, I was in the office of the CEO with my colleague, uh, Ned Bowman. We were looking at—this uh, is the CEO of Roman Haas, and we were looking at the challenges that the company was facing in dealing with environmental risks. And when we arrived there, we were told that there had been a a large chemical accident in Bhopal that actually the company was very concerned about. It involved Union Carbide, but every chemical company was involved. And that really was the start of the center because we actually worked very closely with Roman Haas and uh, the Cigna Corporation that was also in Philadelphia to actually have a partnership to begin to look at issues like chemical accidents as a way of beginning to try to figure out how we would deal with these extreme events. So if you were to think about the catastrophic risks that businesses faced 30 years ago, what were some of the most important risks in addition to uh, uh, manufacturing accidents like Bhopal? Uh, that you were concerned about? Well, it was really the chemical accidents that got us started. And I think technological accidents were clearly a very important uh, part of how businesses had to think. They weren't thinking as much about it as we would have liked them to think. I think they were saying it wasn't going to happen to me. Uh, but that was certainly on their agenda. And any time there was an accident like a Bhopal, they then paid attention to it. The other area that uh, we focused on and that had been a lot of the research that a number of us had been doing, and my colleague, late colleague Paul Kleindorfer was co-director of the center when we formed it, were the natural hazards risks and natural disasters. And those were risks, again, that were not predictable as to when they would occur, but if there was a severe hurricane or flood or earthquake, uh, that actually might have an impact in terms of how the firms had to react. And what were some of the research projects that you took on to, to look into these risks? Well, uh, because of our start with uh, the, the chemical industry, uh, we had a very large project uh, with uh, the Environmental Protection Agency on chemical accidents, how one dealt with that, and technological accidents. So we were certainly working on that. We were also working on uh, the natural hazards area and why uh, individuals were not protecting themselves and purchasing insurance. That was something that um, both Paul and I had been focusing on with others over a period of time. And then the other area that uh, emerged was the siting of the high-level radioactive waste facility in Yucca Mountain. There was a whole project that was formed, and for 10 years there were a group of us who were working together. In fact, uh, it, was a, it was very much of a, a group that interdisciplinary group. Paul Slovak, who was someone who we had work, we worked with over the years, was a part of that. Roger Kasperson, geographer, a psychologist, and then there were anthropologists and we were all working with the state of Nevada to try to figure out how one would site this facility, and so the center played a role in that. We had been looking at siting of liquefied natural gas facilities before the center had been formed. 
And what would you say were some of the key findings of your earliest research projects? Well, I think the key findings are findings we may want to talk about even today, uh, that really what was happening is it wasn't until a disaster occurred that there was really a lot of attention that was paid. There was a tendency to f say, this is not going to happen to me. And the firms were behaving that way. Certainly consumers and homeowners were behaving that way. And as a result, we as a center were trying to figure out ways that we could really focus on the issue that these were important things to think about beforehand and what kinds of programs and policies could be put forward to try to deal with them so we didn't have to be in a reactive mode after a disaster occurred. Well, I, 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 now I would love to turn to all of you and say, I mean, if you were to just look back over the past 30 years, uh, how would you say the nature of risk has evolved and changed? From uh, Bob, would you like to start us off? Well, the, the risks have always been there, and, and I think one of the things that we, uh, that sort of building on what, what Howard was saying, that I think that one of the things we've observed as a center is that, that often when you talk to companies, you talk to individuals, what are the risks that they're most concerned about, uh, typically they're the things that just happened yesterday. So people tend to focus on the disaster that just happened, and often, it, and, and so one of the things we try to do as a, as a center is to get uh, people and organizations to focus not just on the event that just happened, but but kind of refocus their, their interest on, on unseen risks, the ones that they're not currently focusing on now. Um, that just to kind of give you an example, the, um, uh, what we work with the uh, World Economic Forum, um, and, uh, and every year they come out with a, a very, very large survey of about 900 uh, CEOs and, uh, and academics to ask them what are the risks that they're most concerned about. Um, and typically what you find is an awful lot of great year-to-year -year variability in what is hitting the radar screen. Uh, so, for example, what's a, an interesting result was that uh, last year the, the number one thing that, that, um, uh, that came up was a state unrest, and and particularly in Europe, and and if you think about it, that makes sense because what what are the big news items and for that would be a concern to people in Europe last year? Well, unrest in the Ukraine and so forth. And what's interesting is so that sort of makes sense. But what's interesting is uh, a risk which was very important two or three years ago, cyber terrorism, suddenly dropped to number ten on the list. And so in some sense, I I, I think that one of the things that we, one of our challenges as a center is to get people in Oregon organizations to think about not just focus on the thing that just most happened most recently, but get a real good long-term view of, of what are real risks. And, and often the things you have to worry about are the things that you're not currently thinking about now. Erwin, uh, what do you think? Uh, no, I think both uh, Howard and, 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 and Bob said right. Uh, I think what, what has made the, the center unique is really two things. One is uh, we all of us conduct very good research. So uh, it's not just a series of conferences going on. It's uh, we publish interpretive reviews and we have the expertise. Uh, you know, some of us teach as well. And obviously, the third pillar is that outreach activities that both uh, uh, Bob and Howard mentioned, which is that instead of just doing the research internally, we have collaboration with uh, World Economic Forum, the OECD, the World Bank, the United Nations, many industry, many governments around, around the world. So we remain relevant as well. And the challenge has, has been said. I think the, the nature of risk management has changed a lot. Uh, of the past 30 years from something that that was and exclusively almost technical to something that remained technical, of course, but becomes more and more strategic today, uh, whether it's a World Economic Forum or whether uh, uh, board of directors around the world, uh, more risk committees are being formed as we speak in many industries across the world. So the topic, the topic itself changed, which means that as researcher, we need to uh, change the way we approach these issues um, 
as well. So whether it's natural disasters, cyber risk, uh, interdependencies between these risks. So maybe you look at what's happening now in Syria, thinking, well, that was a, just a geopolitical issue. And then three months later, that becomes a migration issue, an economic issue uh, in Europe. And then maybe in two months, that become a big issue in the US. So uh, the world is becoming more and more interdependent, somewhat of a cliche, people talk about it. But I think we're living it um, every uh, every day. So an earthquake in China 30 years ago would have been an earthquake in, in China. Well, an earthquake in China has massive impact on global supply chain worldwide uh, from uh, Frankfurt to Detroit today. I wonder if I could turn to each of you and ask you to speak about a current research initiative that you're involved in and, and why it is so important uh, to business practitioners. Howard, could you start yeah. with you, Let, me, let me just add one comment to what Bob and Erwan has said about sort of where the center was focused. I think one of the things that uh, the center was focused on has the decision processes. And we have it in the title. We always are thinking about essentially how uh, people are, whether it's an in, a consumer or a homeowner, whether it's a manager in a firm, or whether it's the government and the public sector, how they're behaving, so that we can develop strategies for dealing with that. And I think in that sense, the center is somewhat unique in that we are really trying to tie together the risk assessment part, which we, which Bob and Erwin were emphasizing, but also the risk perception along with risk management. And it's that theme coming together. And then to talk about uh, a, a current project related really to some of the points that uh, were just made, uh, we have been interviewing uh, the CEOs of uh, 100 of the S&P 500 firms and a large project that had been really uh, funded by the Travelers Foundation, uh, and that involves also the Leadership Center. And we do like to work with other centers, and the Leadership Center that Mike Yusin co-directs is, is a part of that project. And what we've been asking these uh, uh, managers of firms is, what is the most important risk that they are concerned about, that, would, that uh, have been concerned about, not just necessarily yesterday, but where they've been concerned about in terms of an adverse or that might have adverse or catastrophic consequences to them? And you get a whole variety of different answers from them. And as Bob had indicated, uh, often it is a more recent disaster. And just to illustrate one example, uh, the Fukushima earthquake was one that you do hear from these firms uh, as something that was important. It highlighted the points that Erwan was raising on interdependencies. Uh, these firms are very concerned. Uh, the automobile industry was really hurt very hard by the supply chain problem with respect to that. And so we've been interested in that. And the reason for doing that project is to try to develop some benchmarks with respect to how they, firms could behave differently in the future. So that's one project that is currently underway. We're finishing that up now, and we hope to publish our results over the course of the next year or so. Thank you, Howard. Bob? In, uh, yeah. Um, uh, one project I've been involved in recently that was actually ongoing that we're, uh, I'm pretty excited about is one of the things I've, I've discovered and we've discovered in the course of research is that often one of the reasons that people have a difficult time um, making good decisions to prepare for rare events uh, is the fact that people have very poor mental models of how these events are going to unfold. Uh, a great example is um, in Hurricane Sandy, uh, one of the, uh, the real surprising results is even though this is a, an event which everyone in the world knew about uh, and there was uh, front page banner headlines telling people that this huge storm was coming in uh, and there was no shortage of warnings, what was really surprising is, is that, um, uh, that, that there's an awful lot of, uh, of 
deaths and, uh, and, and damage that were primarily due to flooding. And one of the things that we did was, uh, 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 just as the storm was approaching, was we asked people, uh, what, what is, if this is before the storm actually hit, what is the threat that you think is going to, you're most worried about? And even though the main threat, actual threat that they faced was flooding, what people tended to say was we were mainly worried about wind, okay? And that is a fundamental mistake, because in some sense, they, the, the storm is coming in, it's a flood threat, but they're going out boarding up their windows when at the same time leaving their car on the street, and the next day they wake up and, of course, their car is ruined or, or they don't evacuate and they don't understand why they've been asked to evacuate. So one of the things we're involved in doing is, is developing uh, virtual web-based simulations that allow people to eventually experience um, uh, events like uh, uh, very severe storms and so forth, which they otherwise wouldn't be able to. And in these environments, people are, uh, are for example, uh, put into a virtual living room and they're told that uh, there's a storm out in the, in, the distant, uh, in the distant horizon and they have the opportunity to gather information as they normally would and they basically get to experience what it would actually be like to go through one of these events uh, for people who, who normally would not have that opportunity. So we see that as a kind of a great vehicle for as a teaching vehicle and also as a research vehicle um, uh, for studying very, very rare, rare events which, uh, and, and these are things which you, you want people to know about this before they occur, not at learn from uh, unfortunate experience after they occur. Absolutely. And you want something that can be used anywhere in the world, which yeah, is what yeah, you're building, yeah, which is pretty yeah. cool. Uh, the other, I mean, we have many projects, as you know, Mukul, but another one is related which to... Is, which one is your favorite? Uh, well, I have two, briefly. Uh, when you look at natural disasters around the world, flood is by an order of magnitude the largest of, of all in terms of number of people affected, economic costs. And that's true in the, in the world, that's true in the U.S. as well. So uh, the center is doing a lot of work on flood-related risk, both on the assessment of the flood, coastal flooding, inland flooding, trying to better understand the, uh, the risk. A lot of work on flood insurance as well, uh, touching on some of the point that uh, Howard and Bob mentioned as well. Uh, for instance, we have access to uh, through collaboration with FEMA and DHS through their entire portfolio of data. So we can actually crunch the data and trying to better understand through uh, a few million uh, data points through the National Flood Insurance Program and then publish the work and then work with the industry and also the, um, the public sector, federal government, trying to improve that program. Related to that project, we, um, there is a buzzword out there called resilience. Um, you know, everybody talks about resilience. I'm still uh, having a hard time finding one person who's against resilience, which tells me that maybe we have an issue here. But uh, joke aside, we, uh, we decided as a group to take a serious look at, at, at flood resilience, maybe in a more quantitative manner than just talking about resilience. And uh, we have a few projects related to uh, flood resilience. We have done some work in New York City. We're doing some work with the Zurich Foundation, a Swiss company, uh, in five or six different countries. Uh, and, and in all of these projects, instead of having, I think that's what makes the center somewhat unique as well, one person or two people working on a paper which some of us tend to do, we recognize we need expertise from a large number of, of individuals. So uh, most of our large projects tend to involve five, six, ten people with different backgrounds, which obviously is much more interesting for us because you can really tackle large-scale issue uh, in a way that you couldn't if you were just writing your own paper by, um, by yourself. Right. Now let's, let's turn from the present to maybe look Three, the next three to five years in the future. Uh, given everything that we've discussed about the interdependence uh, factor, and, and uh, uh, not just in the U.S., but globally, what do you think will be the biggest risks that uh, people and companies around the world 
should be thinking about for the next three to five years? Well, there's, there's no doubt, I think, that a risk that we've all been thinking about but have a very hard time dealing with is climate change. And that is something the center has been paying attention to over the last few years, more so than in the past. Uh, it became really a very important theme in the 30th anniversary that we just had for the risk center. Uh, there was a long discussion at the end of, the, uh, of our conference uh, related to a question that had been posed. We did a little polling exercise over lunch. And one of the questions that was asked in that exercise was, how serious does one think the climate change problem was? Uh, when this was done with MBA students entering a couple of years ago, there were a number of, there were a significant number, maybe 8%, who actually coming in felt it was not a problem at all, which was very surprising. No one in the room felt that way, and no one in the room th felt that it was not serious, but there were a group of people who felt that it was serious and not very serious. And so we had a long discussion at the end that I think will be a focus on what we'll be doing over the next three to five years as a general question. How do you instill the fact that there are these problems that may not happen for uh, 50 uh, years in terms of very serious impacts, but we have to worry about now? How do we deal with them? And this is something that uh, Bob and Erwan have both mentioned in the context of earlier research, and I think Bob's the simulation project is an example of how do you get people to pay attention. So we are really, I think, uh, going to focus on that issue, but I think other issues as well as to how do you stimulate concern today so that one needs to take protection. And so we had a discussion at the end of our, our meeting on what, how we could make everyone feel this is a very serious problem in this country in order for people to, for us to be able to take some steps now to deal with this because if you have enough people who feel it, 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 it isn't very serious, and this was a group of people who really should have felt that it was very serious, and so we know there are a number of people who feel it isn't a problem at all and are convinced that it isn't a problem. And so the, the challenge I think we face with our center is how do we stimulate uh, uh, long-term strategies uh, and people to take protection, organizations, countries to take protection, and then uh, in, but at the same time recognize that one has to address the short run concerns that people have if we're going to be successful. And we may have to use new technologies and, and videos and, and, and pictures rather than words to be able to sort of get that across. Yeah, I think one of the things that climate change is, is in fact, a, it's an it's enormously difficult and it's a fascinating topic. I think that one of the things that's involved in, in dealing with it is some encouraging both communities, individuals, and, uh, and organizations to basically to develop a much more of an adaptive mindset than has traditionally been the, the case in the past. And it, it's sort of interesting that I think that, that if you think kind of long-term historically, that human civilization emerged at a time of very extreme rapid climate change. Uh, that, for example, as recently as 7,000 years ago, which is not, you know, not that really th that long ago, uh, if you lived in the Netherlands, you would walk to uh, to Great Britain, okay? And 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 so during that period, sea level was coming up very rapidly after the, the melting of the last glaciers. Uh, and, and so what would happen, of course, is, is that we lived in, uh, in tents, and we lived and we wandered around everywhere, and if the water came up, we just moved to a new place. Of course, what sort of happened since then is suddenly coming from this mindset of the world is constantly 
changing, and we're very much part of that change, kind of went to kind of a mo- more modern view of the world is static, and that we put up cities uh, right at sea level uh, and, and so forth. And we have an enormous uh, civilization which is built all on the premise that nothing ever changes, number one, and that the climate is invariant, and number two is the fact that w- we somehow or another are independent of the climate, that the actions that we take, the things that we build, the, the things we put into the air isn't having an effect on climate. And I, I think that what, what sort of happened is, is in re- recent years has suddenly come this big awakening that, no, uh, it, in fact, all of the that the world is constantly changing. And, and basically, if we don't have this adaptive mindset, we're going to be facing enormous trouble. And, and unfortunately, the cost of getting from here to there suddenly uh, is a significant one, because now you're going to have to take large cities like Miami and New York and say, well, what are you going to do when the sea level comes up by another six feet? You know, what are you going to do with all these buildings? And these are fundamental problems. So, so quickly, I, I think to answer your question, in addition to that one, which is kind of a big one, cutting across actually uh, many others, uh, the list is pretty long from cyber attack, uh, big data, uh, risk related to new technologies, overregulation. We haven't talked about that, but it's clearly something on the mind of, of many people around the world. Uh, even though overregulation is obviously um, uh, depends on, on where you sit <laughs> uh, on the topic. Uh, terrorism is not, I mean, given what ISIS is doing in, in the Middle East, we know it's not over. So the list is long. I think one big question uh, we'll have in the future, in addition to what has been done already, is uh, who's paying for all of these catastrophes at the end? Now, what type of optimal resharing arrangement can you put together in a world where more and more uh, governments are running very large public deficits? where uh, more people ask for their government to help them during disaster time, but, you know, we don't have necessarily the money. So reforming the, uh, our own mindset, not only just in, here in the U.S., but around the world on uh, who's supposed to pay for these disasters, how do we incentivize people, firms, governments, cities, as was mentioned before, to actually start investing before a catastrophe happened. And again, we're not just talking about natural disasters here. So that whole mindset about reforming that disaster financing. And also one thing I will say, we talked a lot about risks. Uh, There are great opportunities coming with that as well. Um, 80% of the world population by 2050 will be in cities. Mm. So thinking about cities as small pockets here and there is totally irrelevant. So there are great things with concentrating people and assets in the same place. But as Bob mentioned, uh, when something hit that very city, whether it's a pandemic, uh, an earthquake, a natural disaster, terrorist attack, uh, that would be a catastrophe almost by definition. So, uh, and then we need the other 20% because the other 20% is basically agriculture. So we need, we need to feed as a people as well. So there are amazing, amazing challenges and opportunities uh, ahead of us. Let let me add one point to what Erwin was just saying on the who should pay, because I think it's a really critical issue that we have been struggling with. And I want to sort of raise it as we have raised it in the center on issues of inequality, which is now a real challenge. And it's not just the low-income people, as we all know, the middle class is a part of that as well. And I think that one of the areas, uh, we like to focus in the center on case studies and examples and concrete problems, as I think you've already heard from all of us. And you take the flood problem as an example, which is obviously related to the climate change issue and what's going to happen to a city like Miami, which is uh, clearly uh, with sea level rise and some of the things that are going to occur. And we have really a challenge here with related to the affordability issue. We as a center have been focusing uh, from almost the outset on the role that insurance can play as a way of getting people to take protection. But if you, uh, but the way that insurance could play that role is the premiums have to reflect essentially 
actually the risk to let people know how serious the hazard is, but at the same time, essentially to help them to maybe take some steps to reduce that risk, uh, to elevate their house or to make their house uh, floodproof in some fashion, because they'll get a premium discount. Now, the challenge that I think we see in this relates to the who is going to pay when you have a lot of low-income and middle-income people who are living in high-hazard areas who cannot afford that insurance when the premiums reflect risk. And so the center has been focusing on that issue and will be doing a fair amount more in the, in the coming years with the inequality issue in terms of are we going to, in some fashion, subsidize the low-income people? Can, should we do it through an insurance premium? Should we do it through other mechanisms such as vouchers or other ways that are not tied to insurance? And that issue is going to be a central part of the issue. And at the end of the day, the who should pay is going to come on the table, which is what we know Congress is facing today when they are actually making decisions on what programs they're going to support. Exactly. And we also know that the answer will depend on where you are. I mean, uh, right. the U.S. may have different view on the matter that um, the British or German or India or China. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I think one thing that makes uh, the whole thing kind of complicated, uh, uh, Howard was talking about the importance of decision processes in all of this. And, and I think at the end of the day uh, that, that a lot of decisions that people, all the decisions that people make about whether or not they want to in, buy insurance or undertake protection uh, is rooted very much in kind of what they believe the risks are that they're facing. And so in some sense, in addition to the, the affordability issue that you have, one thing that's compounding with it is the fact that an insurer may come in uh, and say, uh, this is what I, we think or we've calculated objectively your risk to be. And so based on that, here is the price of this coverage. But then, of course, the people who are, who are living in, a, uh, in the home look at that and they say, well, that's not at all my risk. Okay, And in fact, I don't have any, anything near the risk that you think I face. And so therefore, it's grossly overpriced. And so therefore, they don't buy the coverage. And so in some sense, you could do risk-based rates. But basically, if people sort of feel that it's mispriced and they don't buy the coverage, then you still have, then insurance doesn't work. Okay, And then essentially, then you still have to ask the question, then when the disaster comes in and, uh, and you have all these people that are uninsured, who sort of pays mm -hmm. for that at that point, and that's a that's a that's a major problem. Exactly. And that problem is compounded when you have a highly subsidized premium, because then people think that they're safer than they actually are. So you have a combination of saying, "Here's a, a premium that has a risk," and they say, "That isn't really my risk." But then you also have the reverse problem, in, which is true in the flood case, where the premium is very low for many individuals, and they say, "Well, I'm really a lot safer than I actually thought I was," and they are really that safe. Right. So given all the risks that you identified that uh, the world will be facing over the next three to five years, what advice would you give, say, chief risk officers or security officers about how do you protect uh, people and property against these risks? Well, I want to just follow on Bob's comment on decision processes and the challenges, which I think something that managers as well as in, uh, homeowners, let's say, and people face. And I think the, the biggest advice, the advice that we have been trying to get across a piece of advice. There's lots of advice, and you'll hear Bob and Erwan will have some additional points, I'm sure, uh, is how do you get people to think long-term? How do you get managers to think long-term? 
but at the same, same time recognize that there are all sorts of reasons why they're going to want to think short-term because their own tenure is, again, they may even feel is short-term and whatnot, and they're not thinking 50 years or 20 years out. And how do we develop the kinds of programs with incentives that will enable them to think long-term, but at the same time reward them or reward their company, let's say, if you're talking about firms, or reward the homeowner, if you're talking about families, to take some steps today. So that would be one question. We have thoughts on that, but it would be one area that we'd want to think about. Yeah, I'm in uh, um, my, actually, my main position is in the marketing department, and we're kind of in the business of trying to think about how do you persuade people to buy products and undertake certain sorts of actions. And I think that one of the real challenges that exists in the area of protective investments is the fact that that there's probably no harder sell. Uh, as effectively, what you're asking people to do is to invest a large amount uh, in different sorts of instruments, such as insurance or protective measures, that uh, that you hope they're never going to use at all. Okay, and so in some sense, you're, 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 it's a very very difficult thing, and you're having to convince them based on credence that somehow or another, in the long run, uh, five years, ten years, fifty years from now, this investment that you're making now will prove beneficial in helping you avoid a loss that you might otherwise face. And and that's just such a very difficult thing to do to try to get people to think of those terms of long-term benefits. And uh, so that's one of the great challenges. And we basically, and, and how do you get people to think, to shift their mindset from focusing on what's the best use of my money today, which will almost never be to buy insurance, will almost never be to, to build a stronger house, and to say, no, 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 you can't think about today. You have to think about maximizing utility over a 50-year horizon. Yeah, no, I mean, all of that is, is right. And uh, you already talk about insurance at a dinner table, except to complain about it. Rarely to say, oh, my yeah. gosh, I yeah. get a great insurance contract. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, th I think your question depends very much on whether you're talking about individuals, and we talked a lot, versus corporations, especially large corporations. I think the, the challenge with individuals is that, uh, yeah, there have been more floods, there have been more natural disasters around the world, but still the likelihood of, of you being hit by a flood today and in the next 10 years, uh, hopefully it's not, tw you know, it's not 100 percent and it's not 20 times during 10 years. So uh, the, the silence of the uh, of the event is important. Uh, when you move from individuals to which makes which make it complicated, as, as I was said before, when you move from these individuals to, let's say, the opposite or the other extreme, uh, large multinational corporations doing business in 100 countries, what is the likelihood of that firm being hit by a serious crisis next month? Very close to one today. So uh, going back to Howard's uh, starting the center 30 years ago where these issues were discussed, but maybe every 10, 20 years you had a big event. Sounds like now every six months you have another one. I mean, just about you know the, what's happening in Syria and the migrants. Uh, a year ago, it was all about uh, uh, Ebola. People almost forget about Ebola. And then you have uh, Volkswagen. Uh, cheating the system. So the nature of the crisis will be different, but every time there is a disaster, I think that makes risk management and opportunities at better managing the risk even more silent at the level of the uh, of the firm, which explains why so many companies have created that, that conductor position called the chief risk officer, recognizing that we cannot just look at these risks in silos, we have to aggregate them. And uh, more and more countries and or cities at least start thinking the same way, saying, 
as a city, as a mayor of the city, I can adjust about think about flood. Uh, unemployment is a big risk for me. Health is a big risk. So having this integrated approach of risk management, and there are tools, new methodologies, obviously, that some of that has been developed by our team. Uh, but there are other teams around the world working on these issues today. It's a very exciting time. Great. And I have one last question for each of you, uh, which is that any research center exists to do research, but also to make an impact on the practice of management. Uh, so, so if you were to think about the work uh, being done at the Risk and Decision Processes Center, uh, what would you say has been the impact on the practice of management so far, and what kind of impact would you hope to have in the future? Well, I think I'd come back, as we all have been coming back, to some of the studies that we've done uh, that actually are more optimistic than we would have thought when we started 30 years ago. And I think uh, I'll just use the S&P 500 study that I mentioned earlier, which is looking at how uh, firms have behaved. I think one of the major changes that have occurred, and Erwan alluded to it in his, in his comments just now, is that firms are really seeing this issue as being important on the firm side. Maybe not the consumer yet, all as Bob was sort of saying, maybe they're still facing the challenge on how to deal with it, but firms are really focusing on this now. And I think what we've heard in almost all of our interviews with uh, chief risk officers, CEOs, or high-level uh, uh, people in these firms is that now we are in a new era of catastrophes. We've got to be thinking about these issues. It's an important issue for the board. It's an important issue for us to pay attention to. And most important, we're learning from our past experience, which is one of the decision processes that we always focus on. There are a set of biases that exist. When you have a serious disaster, then you pay attention. And firms are now paying attention to it in a way that they haven't paid attention before. And I think that what we would like to see as a challenge for the center is that if we can somehow get that, uh, take advantage, really, of the fact that people are now being serious about these issues to begin to suggest some policies and programs that are a lot harder to actually adopt, not only for these firms, but for countries. I think the interdependency, the global issues are important for our work, uh, not only on climate change, but on a lot of other risks that will take place. And how do we actually take some steps so that we are able to change a system? That's not just for the, for the corporations or for the individuals, it's for legislation. It's for governments and for the public sector. And we have played a fair, uh, uh, put a fair amount of attention into trying to work in the U.S. with Congress and with other countries with their leading, with the governments, to try to deal with that. As, as Bob and everyone have said, the World Economic Forum and the OECD are groups that we are paying, that we really have an integral uh, re working relationship with and, and are involved with in order to make this an international and global problem. And I think that's what we really have to do, is to try to figure out how we take advantage of where we are today to make some very important changes as we go forward. Yeah, I think in terms of impact, uh, how, uh, at the very beginning, Howard indicated and tried to emphasize the fact that the center does have this name, these two names. It's uh, risk management and decision processes. And the idea that this, uh, uh, the synthesis of the two is sort of the thing that really made the center unique from its founding. And one of the things to me that's been really reassuring is to find out that the same recognition of the importance of this synthesis has really spread out 
out to the, the, the general treatment of risk management. Like, for example, uh, uh, one major development, we were just talking with uh, people at NOAA, um, uh, the, the National Weather Service and so forth, and in the development of warnings, it's become all of a sudden aware to them that in some sense, if you want to develop effective warnings, it's not just simply a matter of having good computer models and having good meteorologists basically to say this is the objective probability that something's going to happen, but you have to find a way of communicating this to people so that they really understand what the impact is going to be. And then, uh, so, and, and how do you get that? Who are the, the, who are the people that you need to bring to the table to have that happen? Well, it, it's not just meteorologists, but you also need psychologists who understand how people understand messages. And that fusion, I think, is, a, is one of the real more positive steps that I've seen across the board in a wide variety of areas. Great. Yeah, and just to uh, complement, I, th I think after 30 years of good work, and not just the three of us, but uh, a bunch of people here, and across the school, across the university as well, uh, we are fairly visible as an entity, which means that people come to us. We have, we have remained neutral. Uh, when we start a project, we don't know what their output will be. That's the beauty of research. And sometimes we, uh, we have been surprised in one way or another. But when we work with uh, corporate partners or governments or uh, large international organizations, we, we start a collaboration with them saying, OK, what are the questions we're asking here? And how can we help you make better decisions? Uh, all of that being published, so we can work with one organization, but you know all of that will be published and then advance the knowledge. And uh, you know that's our motto: knowledge for action. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.